The Midday Report. I'm Mandy Wiener. Keep listening as we round up the key stories affecting your world with interviews with newsmakers, in-depth analysis and eyewitness news reporters on the ground. The Midday Report. Big talking point today, the story leading bulletins dominating social media around the police VIP protection unit and that video that has very much gone viral showing the VIP protection officers on camera brutally assaulting members of the public. No allegedly there. It very much happened. I'm not sure why people are still saying allegedly. So the latest is IPID has just issued a statement in the last few minutes saying the Independent Police Investigative Directorate is investigating allegations of assault against members of Protection Security Services in SAPS. Um, They go on to say that IPID has already engaged SAPS management who are offering their full cooperation operation as far as an IPED investigation is concerned and IPED has also been in contact with the family members of the victims so that they could be assisted in laying charges and that's what it's going to come down to here is do the victims lay charges or do they not lay charges because at the moment what the police are saying is that these individuals will be subject to internal processes what should really happen is they should face criminal charges. The National Police Commissioner, Fanny Masimola, was on 702 Breakfast this morning with my colleague, Bongani Pingwa. Have a listen to what he had to say. I've seen the video uh, last night. It is uh, indeed not uh, an acceptable behavior for members of the South African Police Service. And uh, we are uh, definitely taking action on that. We are investigating it currently. It's a view to take uh, drastic action possible. And uh, yeah, it's, it's totally not on. It's totally not acceptable what we have seen. So you can confirm for us that these were members of the SAPS? Yeah, no, they are members of uh, SAPS Protection Services uh, that we, we can confirm, Bologna. So that is the National Police Commissioner, Fanny Masamola. In the last uh, uh, two hours or so, the Deputy President, Paul Mashatile, issuing a statement saying that he has become aware of an unfortunate incident involved between members of the SAPS who are attached to his protection detail and civilians, which occurred in Joburg over the weekend. He goes on to say the Deputy President appeals to the public to allow the SAPS the necessary space to complete its investigation. The Deputy President has full confidence in the police, uh, and he goes, on and on. I can't stand the use of the word unfortunate. Unfortunate is when your tea gets cold. It's not when your VIP protection officers beat up members of the public. Anyway, as I said, uh, IPED has issued a statement and we are joined now by Robbie Raburabu, who's the national spokesperson for IPED. Robbie, good afternoon to you. Thank you for your time. IPED has just issued a statement. Um, the the investigation by IPED was triggered by two complaints. Uh, tell us who those were from. They are from Mr. Whitfield of the DA and Mr. Tsarblanche of um, um, the Freedom Front. The, this um, 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 complaint was sent to the executive director. Before that, we were not aware of it until these um, two members of parliament approached the executive director and gave the information there. Okay, so you are investigating. What exactly is it that IPED is investigating? We are investigating allegations of assault against the uh, Protection Security Services members of SAPS. 
But at this stage, as uh, my statement actually indicated, we still trying to get um, um, the the victims to give us statements so that we can assist in the uh, in the laying of charges against these members. So no criminal charges have been laid as of yet, as far as you are aware. Not at this stage. Okay. And can you investigate if the victims do not lay criminal charges? We unfortunately would not be able to do that. Okay. So what happens then? Does the, the, the matter become mute? Is it dormant? Can you not look at it at all, even though there is video footage? Remember, we are doing criminal investigations as a department. So besides the statement from the victims themselves, we are not going to be able to can do that. Can somebody else open a criminal charge, not the victims? Uh, yeah, I don't see why. Um, 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 anyone can do that on behalf of the complainants um, if they are willing to, if they have information that exactly what happened to the, to the victims and when. So I, 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 I believe they can still do that. Okay. Robbie, thank you very much for speaking to us at short notice. Robbie Raburabu is the national spokesperson mm-hmm. for IPED, uh, speaking to us there about that IPED investigation. Well, let's speak to Ian Cameron now, who's the Director of Community Safety at Action Society. You'll know that Ian Cameron is very outspoken on the issue of, of policing. Uh, Ian, good afternoon to you. Thank you for your time. I can tell you from personal experience over years as a reporter that that this is very much a culture within the VIP protection unit. I can't tell you the number of times I was bullied and intimidated and threatened uh, by VIP protection officers. Uh, is this just an entrenched culture within this unit and is it acceptable? Uh, it, it absolutely is, Mandy. Thank you for having me. Uh, I, I think it is an entrenched culture. It's been like this for a very long time. Uh, in fact, I became aware of starting, started working with a problem, I think, 13 years ago, 12, 13 years ago. So it, nothing has changed. And, you know, I could just shake my head when I listen to IPED saying that they're investigating assault. First of all, it should be assault GBH. We need to look at a charge of intimidation. We need to look at a charge for pointing of a firearm. There's just so much wrong with this, and it's as though everyone in, from the state side speaks of it so calmly, like this unfortunate, very random incident that doesn't really happen very often. You know, it's so so blasé, and, and, and it's exactly not that. This is an atrocity. It should never happen. The Deputy President, Paul Mashatile, uh, issued a statement about an hour, two hours ago saying that these were my guys, they were attached to me, um, I abhor any unnecessary use of force. Uh, I, I imagine that there, there's no way that Paul Mashatile didn't know about this soon after it happened. Um, I don't believe that he was in that convoy. I think that we would know if he was in that convoy. They're saying that he wasn't. Um, but would you like to see the Deputy President come out swifter, quicker, and stronger against what happened. Well, this is this is kind of like Pablo Escobar condemning uh, uh, violence. You know, it it, uh, it I think it's too little, too late. And I think Pachetila's name speaks for itself. Um, he's been implicated in so much before, and and he he's actually become a bit of an underworld figure, according to many. Uh, but nevertheless, you know, I I, I think it, 
it takes a certain integrity from a leader to not only come out and say you condemn the so-called unfortunate incident, but why aren't these SAFs members or why haven't they been arrested already? Um, surely they can be held up until the point where they can't be anymore. Um, there, there must be more that can be done. I also don't buy the the whole thing about uh, you know having to, to wait for the victims or we're still busy speaking with them. What's so difficult about, about getting in a car? Surely SAPs can, could have been there within two hours, including IPID, obviously. Um, I don't know, Mandy. I just, I'm, I, I might sound too negative. I'm just tired of all the, the the nonsense answers we get every single time. Do they do they think so little of civilians? It's almost as though they believe we believe, we work for the state and not the other way around. So years ago, Helen Ziller took a, a very strong line against uh, the so-called blue light brigades in the Western Cape, um, and uh, said they're not going to be any blue light brigades. What is the remedy here? Uh, what should be happening? How do we ensure that politicians are protected if, if they need to be protected? Uh, and, and how should the VIP uh, teams be conducting themselves? Uh, look, firstly, um, there's a risk assessment that should be done for each of them, and each of them might have a different risk uh, profile, um, and that needs to be conducted by uh, other members in the South African Police Service that need to do the necessary work to to determine whether they need protection, and if they do, what that protection would entail. So um, that needs to be done, and, and I think that needs to be done uh, for for each individual. You know, it can't just be that one person gets eight vehicles and another three, and it and it randomly decided. Um, I think it's complete overkill. I think it's more of a, a social status kind of thing uh, instead of really focusing on protection. I've never up to today heard of a point where any of these politicians were were threatened at all. In fact, it's become more of a threat to, to the public. Um, the remedy, in my opinion, is that no blue light should be used unless it's an absolute emergency. It must be life-threatening. We know how they've abused blue lights uh, uh, across the country, still do, and um, and we've never seen any kind of repercussions mm. for those involved in it, including the, the said politicians. Right. Ian, thank you very much. Uh, Ian Cameron is the director. Ian Cameron is the director of Community Safety at Action Society, speaking to us there. I'm sure by now you have seen the video. Of course, I, like you, am curious to know what the catalyst was. What happened before the video started? Is that relevant? Does it matter? What could these individuals possibly have done that would have triggered this kind of reaction? And also, why did these VIP protection officers not stay, not open a case, not arrest the individuals if they had committed some very concerning crime, uh, you know, why couldn't they arrest them? Why couldn't they wait for police officers uh, from a local station to arrive? There is no way you can have jackbooted, violent, abusive, aggressive protection officers like that. There is simply no justification for it. On 702 and Cape Talk, this is the Midday Report with Mandy Wiener, brought to you by NetBank Commercial Banking, specialists who enable your business growth aspirations. 20-year-old Safiso Mkwanazi also back in the dock today in the magistrate's court. He was arrested in connection with the discovery of six sex workers' bodies at his father's panel-beating shop. So we were expecting the finalization of DNA evidence. Uh, EWN telling us an additional charge has been laid as well. Khamotso Modise, EWN reporter with the latest on that. Joining us in studio, Khamotso, good afternoon. What happened in court today? 
Well, Mandy, you know, uh, over the last few appearances, we've been hearing from the state that the matter is potentially ready to go to the High Court for trial. And that's what we've been waiting for, right? At least pre-trial proceedings should um, make their way to the High Court. However, today we heard from a state prosecutor, uh, Advocate Tepo Mahange Gamzizi, who told the court that he's actually got a, a, a phone call um, from the Office of the Director of Public Prosecutions, uh, making him aware of this additional docket. And that is a rape docket that is from before these charges. So um, it seems before uh, Aslisa was linked to the six bodies, uh, he had actually been arrested and charged with rape. Hmm. And he'd actually appeared in the uh, Johannesburg Magistrates Court. And then that uh, rape charge was withdrawn somehow. And he, you know, never made his way back to court ever again. However, the DPP seems to be interested in this matter and actually wants this rape uh, case uh, or docket to be explored. Um, and so today, we heard from Mahanga Gamzizi that they're actually going through that docket and they could possibly join it with the murder of the six women um, that were discovered at his father's panel beta. You might not know the answer to this question, but how did the, the DPP, and that's the um, Deputy Director of Public Prosecutions, uh, connect him to this docket? Was it, for, was it a forensics connection or was it uh, purely because they read his ID number and worked it out. Yes, so you're right. I don't know. But I I, I do, I, I believe from what I heard today, um, it seems there was a background check uh, of some sort that was done through the ID number. Um, and I've been following this case and I don't remember a time where he was either asked or, um, you know, uh, yeah, told to declare whether he's got uh, previous uh, convictions. And that's because he abandoned his bid for bail. So there wasn't a time in court. Then, yeah. Yes, there wasn't a time in court where any of his uh, lawyers said that he didn't have a previous uh, conviction or at least a pending matter or a previous matter. Um, so yeah, the court is only being made aware of this right now. But I think it's interesting that the DPP actually thinks that there could be something here worth pursuing and that uh, it could possibly be linked and put together in a single docket together with the six um, murders. Any suggestions there may be further dockets beyond this one? Well, you know, speaking to many of the ladies that um, are sex workers, they say that they've opened their own charges against him before. Um, they're saying he's no stranger to them. And they're saying if, you know, the, the law enforcement had just taken them seriously and actually pursued the matters that they had brought to their attention, then maybe the ladies who have passed away now wouldn't have died. So, you know, it seems he's no stranger to the law. And we cannot rule out the possibility of another docket or another charge surfacing in the future. Komoto Modise, EWN reporter, thank you very much for that 20-year-old Sivisum Konazi back in court today. A further docket being added there, originally uh, charged with uh, the murder of six, uh, after the discovery of six sex workers' bodies at his father's panel beaters. The Midday Report. Well, it's been two years uh, since the July 2021 unrest. And you'll remember that one of the big talking points coming out of the unrest was the impact on SASRIA, government's uh, insurance arm, and uh, how many claims were made and how SASRIA had to respond to this because of all the looting and because of the violence. So now, uh, two years down the line, SASRIA has uh, launched a 
documentary uh, which um, really looks at the impact of the riots. Uh, it, it focuses on one of the areas that was most affected and it really does have an education element around how we should be dealing with this kind of vandalism. Mpumi Chikwe is the Sasria CEO joining us now. Mpumi, good afternoon to you. Thank you very much for your time today. Why have you decided to, to use this approach of a documentary? Is it purely educational uh, or what is your motivation behind it? Uh, good, good afternoon, Mandy, and good afternoon to your listeners as well. Yes, its intention is really one uh, for South Africans never to forget what happened in July 2021 and the impact that it had on various South Africans. If we might recall, more than 350 South Africans lost their lives during that time, over that nine days, that started in July 9, 2021. We also made a loss of uh, people lost their jobs. Over 30,000 jobs were lost. And also we had a scenario where from an economic point of view, the losses exceeded 50 billion rands, of which only 60% were insured. So we are trying to remind South Africans of what happened and also to say we need to change the trajectory of how we do protests in South Africa and how we manage protests as well. So it does have an element of, of social activism. Obviously, it's, it's in Sassaria's interest for there not to be protests like this again, so you don't face billions and billion, billions of rands in claims. What are the potential alternative strategies that could have lessened the disaster's magnitude? Well, it's, it's quite well known by now that the police could have uh, reacted faster. That's, that's, the, that's the first thing. The more important one, which I believe has got more long-term effects in, in a South African context, is how do we engage communities in economic, in, in, for them to get the economic benefit of what has happened in South Africa in terms of our, of our democracy. Basically, most South Africans feel that they are not included in the economic story. And when they destroy property, they feel that they have nothing to lose. But what July 2021 taught us was that this very same communities are the ones who stepped up and protected the buildings when some wanted to attack them. So for me, it's a question of how do we engage communities? How do we give them hope and make them part of the South African economic uh, uh, economic story. Mpumi, thank you very much. Mpumi Chikwe is the Sasria CEO speaking to us there about this documentary. It's called The Unrest. It will be screened uh, in Joburg at Sturkinico in Santon City this Thursday. It's going to be made available on mainstream public platforms as well. A really uh, innovative, interesting approach taken by Sasria here. They were hit by billions and billions in claims as a result of the July unrest. And they are looking at this as a, as a way to, to tell people that there are other ways to protest instead of uh, looting and burning and destroying the property. The Midday Report. Good afternoon, Mandy. Talking about the video, and I totally agree with you. The word unfortunate is is such a wrong word to actually use by these various people from either IPAD or the police. It is extremely, extremely disturbing. It is upsetting to see how these youngsters were actually kicked to a pulp and brutally attacked by these guys wielding big machine guns. 
And you know, it really upsets a person of the public to think that these guys are really doing these things with impunity and they think they are above the law because today it's these youngsters, tomorrow it can be any one of us on the road. Hi, uh, Mandy. It's uh, Norman and Pretoria. The video of the protective unit of uh, former, uh, rather, of the deputy president, uh, Paul Mashadile, speaks to police brutality at its worst form. But uh, it also points out that uh, the police uh, are doing what they're doing, knowing that uh, they will be left uh, scot free, uh, maybe with a final verbal or written warning. And uh, after then, uh, they will still continue doing what they are doing on the road. It's very sad what uh, happened to these uh, young kids. Yeah, as I said, I do think there's a culture of impunity within the VIP protection unit. Uh, I said earlier as well that to describe this incident as unfortunate, which is the way that the deputy president has described it in his statement, is is completely inaccurate. Unfortunate is when your tea gets cold. It's not when there is brutality like this. And I do think it is a, a culture that is derived from the way that their principles behave. So um, perhaps this is something that the, the deputy president uh, outwardly says he condemns. But he also would have inherited uh, this VIP protection unit from his predecessor. He hasn't been in the job for that long. But let's look also at Wally Roeder, who is the person ultimately responsible for the VIP protection unit. We saw the way that uh, his conduct in Poland was was criticized as well uh, when he had to deal with that issue. And the way that he was implicated in Palapala, if there is no responsibility taken against individuals, if there is impunity, if they do it time and time again, then they are going to continue to behave like this. And it's this culture that is within the VIP protection unit that needs to be addressed urgently. The Midday Report. Yesterday, a, a crucial uh, judgment being handed down by Judge Roland Sutherland in the uh, the matter between Amubungani, the journalism outfit, and the Moti Group. Uh, Judge Sutherland issuing a scathing rebuke of the Moti Group and its lawyers in that judgment, uh, overturning an earlier gag order that was obtained against Amabungani in that secret ex parte hearing. And Judge Sutherland really was critical. And many times in that statement, uh, in, in that judgment, uh, he, he used the phrase, a most egregious abuse of the court process. Judge Sutherland saying that uh, Amabungani had given undertaking to preserve the thousands of documents that make up the Moti files pending any open legal challenge. So in response to this last night on uh, The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield, the Moti Group's chief executive, Dondo Mogajani, came on 702 and Cape Talk, and he said that this was just the first round in this legal battle. Have a listen. First, let me indicate that it's not a gagging order. I I always said, even the last time, I said the same, uh, we did not go behind closed doors. An ex parte application is allowable in law, it's part of our process, but let's... Let's talk about that later on. The fact that I'm here, Bruce, I'm not going to leave. I was, it was a ridiculous question that your uh, colleagues asked me whether I'm going to leave or not. I mean, how can I leave after a judgment, first round of engagement in the court, then I leave? No, I won't leave the group. I told you there's a reason why I'm with the, the group and, I'm, and, 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 and I'm, I'm pursuing that mission and I will not stop until my mission is accomplished in getting the, the group at the level that you want it to be. But this order, as just maybe going to the details of the order, it's important to know that we, I welcome the order. I definitely welcome the order because uh, I think in this case, uh, you know, the judge in his judgment may have gotten it completely wrong because of the technicalities that I think he focused on. It's not a, it's not a problem that he focused on the technicalities around the order, but 
I'm of the view that the factual funding was not made on Amabunani's position of stolen documents. It was not. So it was just based on technicalities. We've got our options uh, open and we're studying the judgment. Our legal divisions are studying the options. I mean, the options are available for us, provided for in law, and we'll pursue those. And one of those, of course, if it means, if it means, then we have the view that this matter, uh, you know, is of constitutional nature. It's the right to privacy vis-a-vis the right, uh, you know, to just give people an unfettered access to steal your documents and use it willy-nilly as they will. We think still, we have the view still that we've got a case here and we think we'll take the matter up, of course, but however, we are looking at all of the options available to us and we'll certainly, uh, you know, exercise those rights. That's Dondo Mogajani, the Morty Group Chief Executive. He once upon a time was the DG in Treasury, and he's now the CEO of the Morty Group. Well, responding to that and the judgment, Sam Sol is the managing partner at Amabungane. Sam, great to have you with us. Thank you for your time. Uh, your your response to that, Dondo Mogajani is saying in, in that clip there, that interview with Bruce Whitfield, uh, that this was only the first round in the legal battle, that they had not uh, sought to go behind closed doors, uh, it was not a gagging order. Your, what is your response to that? Well, it just perpetuates the kind of misrepresentation of reality that, that the Monty Coopers kind of gushed out into, into social media and via, via its PR uh, campaign. Um, you know, not behind closed doors. It, of course, it was behind closed doors. It was an ex parte in-camera application and, and, and judgment. Um, you know the what what he says is is, is full of full of inaccuracies, but I think what it shows is that you know this is in a sense um, a slap suit um, that uh, they 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 want to throw money at 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 this in the hope of exhausting our resources, despite the fact that you know that they were really severely criticised by the judge for for how they how they acted in the fir- in the first round. Um, you know, they determined to, to, to carry on. A very powerful line in your statement saying that what this whole saga has demonstrated is that our courts are vulnerable to a blitzkrieg offensive, not just to a Stalingrad defense. Yes, exactly. Look, I mean, it, it was astonishing that uh, they were able to go to court in secret um, and obtain, you know, prior restraint in secret in the democratic era a gagging order and 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 an or, a, a, what would have been a final order for us to to return documents and um, both the the judge in the urgent uh, reconsideration of 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 that uh, that order to return documents um, persuaded uh, the Monty Group to uh, to to withdraw that and and then set that aside temporarily and and in the case um, uh, that judgment was given. Yes, yesterday, uh, both both judges said they could not understand how this was uh, this this initial secret order was 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 granted because it's it's unprecedented in the in the in the democratic era, and I think you know that 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 still needs to be explained. There was I think there was some some criticism of the fact that um, uh, the Morty Group's lawyers did not uh, act hundred uh, percent. Uh, mm. Correctly in, in, in providing 
the 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 the, the, the judge uh, in the secret case, the ex parte case, with all right. the details and, and all the judgments that that were relevant. Uh, Sam, what happens now? Is Amumangani going to publish more uh, of the Motti files? Or are you going to hold off? Uh, are you expecting more legal challenges? I imagine you need money to to defend those. Look, yes, um, we we are in the process of of uh, trying to set up uh, some anti-slap. Uh, funds, uh, fund or funds. So we, we do we do need m- money. We've approached uh, some overseas donors, uh, but but uh, local donations are, are also uh, welcome. Uh, yes, we think that that um, you know they, they they will they will take uh, further legal action, and and we have to respond uh, to that. Um, we we definitely are going to uh, go back to the basic work of, of doing the journalism. Um, there has been a hiatus because the, the interim judgment meant we couldn't even access uh, the material. Uh, there was a ban on, on, on using it, not, uh, not just publishing it, not on even, even using it. And our lawyers mm. said that meant accessing. So, so we've got a bit of catching up to do, but, but we plan to do that. Sam, thank you very much. Sam Souls, the managing partner at Amabongani, speaking to us there, uh, responding to that judgment by Judge Sutherland handed down yesterday and the reaction from the Motti Group to that as well. The Midday Report. Hi, Mandy. Sillon Centurion. I was equally amazed that government is saying we are still going to speak to the victim. Yara, yara, we have traced the victim. Hey, man, these people are not in Netherlands or, or flipping Australia. You can just go drive to these people and speak to these people, arrest these people. By now, these police officers should be in jail, should be arrested. Not this thing, we're still going to speak to people because they, they are underwater in that some submissible thing and then we're waiting for them to come back. You know where they are. They are in Gauteng province, so therefore they are within two hours of wherever the police must go to. They must just go there, speak to those people, arrest those people. Those police officers should be in jail right now. I'm sorry. That was honestly one of the funniest voice notes I've, I've actually received. But I, I know it's, a, it's not a funny matter. But this is exactly it. They're not in the Titan. They're not in the submersible. They're in four ways. And the police are still looking for them. But they say that they, they are, they are looking for them. I know that EWN reached out to them and they didn't want to comment as well. But what we need is these, these individuals because they're not in Netherlands. They're not underwater. They're in Joburg. But we need to convince them to actually lay a criminal charge. And when I spoke to IPIN earlier, they're saying that, you know, they are speaking to them about laying a criminal charge and we need them to lay a criminal charge. But would you? Lay a criminal charge against the VIP protection unit after seeing that video. That's the issue that we've got here, is that when there is this culture of intimidation and bullying, those guys, I don't know what happened before the video started, but they are, there's huge risk involved in them doing that. And, and they have to do it if there's going to be justice here. The Midday Report with Mandy Wiener on 702 at Cape Talk. Brought to you by NetBank Commercial Banking. See money differently. Okay, let me try and be a serious talk show host again. Uh, Kasatu has called for a strike this week. It says uh, government is oblivious to the many challenges that are facing workers, uh, the poor, the unemployed as well. We know there are huge issues with the economy, with unemployment, uh, with with growth, uh, with inflation in South Africa. So let's understand what this is about with uh, Matthew Parks, parliamentary coordinator at Kasatu. Matthew, good afternoon to you. Thanks for your time today. Kasatu plans on uh, holding a strike on Thursday. Why exactly is this and what do you expect to happen? Sure, good afternoon. Thanks for having us. 
So look, a strike is a part of a constitutional democracy. It's a chance for workers and for unions to express their grievances, their anger and their frustrations, to put pressure on government and employers in the private sector as well to say, look, workers are not happy, you need to do better. So really the grievances workers are struggling with are not new, they've been ongoing, that's part of the frustration. We have an unemployment rate of 42% and it's rising. Many workers have lost their wages because of their recent economic difficulties in the past few years. Workers are drowning in debt, struggling to take care of the family, the residents and so forth. We've also seen employees in the public and the private sector undermining collective bargaining, walking away from signed agreements. And at the same time, workers are feeling the pain of the crisis in the economy, of a stagnant economy, which struggles to provide jobs. We are feeling the pain of ESCOM load shedding, the, the theft of cables um, from transit, from Metro which is crippling those at critical SOEs, which has a huge impact upon jobs-intensive sectors like mining and manufacturing, agriculture, mm. and also for workers in the city just to get to work to time to earn a full, full salary. Yeah. Um, workers depend upon quality public services, and again, they're feeling the pinch when government cuts back the funding to key departments like Home Affairs, right. when there's a, a freezing of vacancies in the police or teaching, etc. So really, the message mainly to government to say, you've got to do better. Workers can take this, can only take this so far. And even to the private sector, too, to say, look, government must play its role, but you, as business, too, need to also avoid retrenchments, pay people a living wage, create mm-hmm. jobs, avoid retrenchments. Um, ultimately, all of us are on the same boat called South Africa, we need government to do well. We need the private sector to do well. So workers themselves are not thrown at the bus and are drowning all the time. Matthew, uh, if I can just jump in there. Uh, what do you anticipate the scale of this strike to be? Who will be involved? Uh, who will be staying away from work? And what will the impact be? So we've received a very positive response. It's organized by COSATO and its 16 affiliated unions, which operate across the, the economy in public sector and the private sector and SOEs. Um, we're having... A call to workers that, you know, ideally if they can join the marches, there'll be marches in all nine provinces across all urban centres, from Joburg to PE to Bloemfontein to Cape Town, Durban, etc., Polokwane and Kimberley and so forth. Those who can't do it because they live in uh, faraway rural towns, etc., it's fine, and stay away. We've received quite a positive response from workers um, inside COSATU, uh, almost too many members, but even for workers outside of COSATU and other unions and federations have also indicated they're going to join and support because okay. these challenges face all workers and also the protective strike, so no worker can be victimised. We have a Section 77 certificate of NEDLAC, so we encourage all workers to join it. Matthew Parks, Parliamentary Coordinator at COSATU, speaking to us there about the planned strike for Thursday. The Midday Report with Mandy Wiener is brought to you by Nedbank Commercial Banking on 702 and Cape Talk. Nedbank is a licensed FSP and registered credit provider. And of course, when you speak about the impact on the economy, uh, the cost of living, inflation, the price of petrol is also one of those key indicators. The price of petrol uh, is due to fall by 17% a litre. Tomorrow, the price of diesel will increase by 18 cents per litre. Let's speak to Leighton Beard, the AA spokesperson, about this. Uh, Leighton, good afternoon to you. Thank you for Hi. your time. Uh, Hi, what, good afternoon, Manny. Uh, what is the, the reaction to what we're seeing here the price of petrol will go down but the price of diesel will go up yeah i think uh, by and large people are, are very welcoming of the news obviously that petrol is is going to decrease tomorrow but i think the big concern uh, and the red flag that's been raised is this issue of the diesel price that's uh, going to increase because as we know um, diesel is such a big component and input cost in many sectors manufacturing mining and critically in agriculture and when there's an input cost increased in those sectors invariably what you see down the line is an increase to consumer 
tickets as well. And that for us is obviously where the concern is. And what are your uh, expectations? What is the anticipation around that price of diesel going forward? Yeah, it's very difficult to say at this stage, Mandy. You know, these these things are determined by factors such as the rand US dollar exchange rate and international petroleum prices. And to peg, you know, any one of those uh, a day in advance is virtually impossible. Um, you know, we've seen, for instance, the rand fluctuate very wildly over, you know, a week-long period. So to, to see what's going to happen in a month's time is virtually impossible. Well, not virtually, it is impossible. So to kind of give an idea of what's going to happen in, you know, in, in a month's time is, is is, is not possible, but I think the concern around oil production in you know the OPEC countries and Russia and, and increasing uh, you know their outputs that's obviously going to have an impact. Again, you know internal factors will determine the rand US dollar exchange rate as well as other geopolitical events. So it's the thing that you've got to monitor on a daily basis. I, I mean, our concern obviously is that people are embattled. We've seen interest rates climbing throughout the year, mm. um, and these things are just adding to all of the the woes that many many millions of South Africans face daily. Leighton, thank you very much. Uh, Leighton Beard, AA spokesperson there, reacting to the price of petrol uh, falling by 17 per cents per litre tomorrow. The price of diesel will go up by 18 cents per litre. The Midday Report. SAFA, the SA Football Association, due to have two emergency meetings with Banyana Banyana uh, following the intervention of the Minister of Sports, Arts and Culture, Zizi Kodwa, and the Housing Premier, Panyazala Sufi, as well. The Minister saying in a statement yesterday that uh, he also plans to meet uh, with uh, the players and the union today. This is all because of that standoff uh, that occurred on uh, Sunday. And uh, we know that Banyana Banyana is flying out tomorrow to Australia, New Zealand to, to join the, the world. Cup preparations there, uh, but there's still the standoff happening. Let's speak to Kaz Naidu, cricket commentator and importantly, founder of G Sport for Girls. Kaz, good afternoon to you. Thank you for your time. Uh, the, the sense that I've been getting, certainly from the reaction on, on this show and on social media, is that the majority of South Africans do stand with Banyana Banyana on this matter. There have been uh, su- there has been some criticism calling them mercenaries, but for the players, this has been a long time in the making, hasn't it? Afternoon, Mandy. Yeah, I think it's easy to go on speculation, and, and I often say it's easy to get angry. But unless you're taking action, your anger doesn't mean anything. And it's easy to get angry near a World Cup because it's emotional, isn't it? It's partly South African sentiment. But let's rewind a year ago. Banyana Banyana won the Women's African Cup of Nations. And I remember tweeting, it was an ideal opportunity to launch a professional system for women's football then. We wouldn't be in a situation now where players are literally outside a hotel with the CEO fighting for their money. It's not a look for women's football, especially with a team that has achieved as much as they have. So the way I see it is that we really need to take women's sport seriously in this country. And this is a watershed moment, not just for women's football, but for women's sport. Because I sincerely hope that this is the last time ahead of a world event that we put women in sport in such a dire situation. Imagine fighting for bonuses because you don't get paid a salary every month. Mm. And we expect you to go to a World Cup and do well, but we're not prepared to pay you. I mean, imagine if you were to host the show free of charge, Mandy, because it looks good for you. Yeah. And the clock and is ticking. You know, seven oh two does well, you'll get a bonus, and then you'll have to fight for that bonus. And I would put myself in that situation and think, I've worked 20 years in the media industry, and, and I would hate to be in that situation. And there are many footballers who've given over 15 years in that situation. 
And Kaz, it really is about the athletes understanding their worth. It's about prioritizing the professionalization of, of women's sport. And, and is this it? Is this the, the, the catalyst now? Are we at this watershed moment in South Africa? I referenced yesterday that we saw this with, with Megan Rapinoe and the U.S. women's team a few years ago. We saw it decades ago with Billie Jean King in tennis. Is this now the time in South Africa that we're going to see the professionalization of women's sport? We're still 20 years behind. I'm sorry to break that bad news to you. I think that even if it's a watershed moment, let's talk about the U.S. women's football. They first tried out the professional scene in 2001. After two seasons, it collapsed, and then they started again and really took it seriously in 2008. And the fact that Megan Rapinoe and these athletes are still fighting the good fight tells you just how long it takes. Essentially, what we have to do with women's sport is see it as a separate commercial entity and treat it as such. The Women's Professional um, the Professional Football Association in the UK, for 20 years, they've been supporting women's football there. They've got structures in place. They negotiate the contracts for the Lionesses. We can't have, with due respect, the South African Football Players Association coming out now to fight for Banyana Banyana. Shouldn't this have been done behind closed doors? Why do we need a Gauteng Premier to get involved? This is the business of women's sport. Mm. This is an opportunity, a money-making machine for women's football. And you can't, since 2012, have had only one team sponsor. There should be a bouquet of commercial partners. Mm. And we should be having a send-off match against the top team in the European destination. Kaz, what else needs to happen for, for women's sports to, to be professionalized, to, to, to be viewed? How much of this comes down to uh, the awards, like the G for Sport Awards that, that, that you organize, but how much of it comes down to uh, the public changing the, the, their perception? Is it just the administrators or is it everyone? When we launched G Sport in 2006, it's because it was because of a lack of information. And when we launched the Momentum G Sport Awards, it was to recognize women. And both that together made us realize that we can create value for women in sport and show that to sponsors and get a return in investment. And it's taken us 17 years to do that. Uh, mostly self-funded initially, but now sponsors are seeing the value, Momentum, Telcom, and various others. But in the end, you've really got to believe in women's sport in order for us to flourish. And one of the reasons I I like fighting for women in sport is because I see the value. And I think if you ask me right now, what is the one thing we can do right now on the ground is all sports federations in South Africa together and have an Indaba and commit to working together to share with each other their commercial steps, and how they are moving women's sport forward. Because it comes down to the federations making serious decisions about mm-hmm. how they view their women's program. Um, it, the Momentum Proteas got to the final yeah. of the Cricket World Cup because they had professional contracts put in place in 2013, but mostly because the girls and, and, and are playing overseas, right? The women are playing at all these big leagues, so it takes a long time. And I really urge Safa, and I do feel for Lydia Manya Powell having just come in as CEO, but I urge Safa and all the leaders, I'd really like to see more women leaders there, by mm. me, but that's a conversation for another day. But I urge you to treat our women footballers with respect, to see them for who they are, because they're heading off to a World Cup on yeah. a 31-hour journey to New Zealand, jet lag and everything. They could come home losing three games, and guess what we will say? Oh, they were fighting for bonuses. Mm. I feel sad, man.
really Kaz, do. thank you so much, uh, as always. Kaz Naidu, a commentator, founder of G-Sport for, G for Girls, speaking to us there. The Minister Safa meeting with Banyana today. The Midday Report. That's a wrap of the day's news. Don't forget you can catch the full Midday Report live on 702 and Cape Talk via our streams on YouTube and our website 702.co.za and capetalk.co.za. Keep checking in for updates from my colleagues at Eyewitness News. Till the next time, I'm Mandy Wiener. The Midday Report.